I invite you to go ahead and read with me as I read aloud. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following the desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, A lot of times we start off the gathering with a a story, uh, start off the sermon with something that draws you in. I wanted this text to stand on its own at the start of this sermon because of the stark contrast it offers and the way that it's all of our stories. Uh, The stories of you once were, but now you are, is true for every follower of Jesus. And here's the question I want you to ask. I'm gonna have you turn towards each other. Uh, If you are a follower of Jesus, I invite you to answer first. That way in case anyone here is like, hey, that's not really me. Uh, You don't have to be the first one to answer in that way. And then I'll pull us back before you guys all have a chance to share. Uh, But I would love for you to talk to each other briefly and say, which half of that text do you resonate with more? Uh, I once was, and so uh, you once were dead in your sins and trespasses. You once were walking around in these things. You once were under the power of the prince of air, who's another name, code name for Satan. Uh, Or uh, right now, the part that's resonating, but because of grace, I'm rescued, I'm saved, I have renewed purpose, I have a renewed person, I am able to be restored. Uh, Which of those two sides of the text resonates with you uh, as you sit here tonight. Go ahead and finish up those thoughts. And we're just gonna uh, walk through and unpack this text. I stand um, on a bit of a, like, I feel like I'm on a a horse with this one that you could fall off either way. Uh, Not because one side talking about really bad news and one side really good news and so on to ride it, but I feel like there's so much going on here uh, that you could overcomplicate what's taking place. Have you guys ever had that experience where there's something simple and you're trying to explain it, but in explaining it, you make it more complex than it ever had to be and end up confusing anybody? Anybody ever been there? Like, I could ask you to turn around, just for example, uh, explain uh, what it is like to go in water and feel wet without using the words water or wet. And then if you had to do that, it would be super confusing. You'd have to talk about, well, you kind of, uh, maybe, like, it's cooler, but it's not just cold. It's actually, oh, I can't use that word. Let me figure it out. And trying to explain that, um, some of what we're going to talk about tonight is like that. And it's like, you just got to jump in the pool, and then you know what it's like. Uh, This text that Paul is talking to the Ephesians about, it's that same thing. He's talking about a shared experience that as they read it, they can all nod their head, raise their hand, say amen, as it's getting read around their living room. 
But then trying to explain it, uh, you can run the route of just making it really academic and fact-centered and filling up someone's head but never transforming their heart because there's so much going on. And then on the other hand, you can miss some of the, the dense uh, but beautiful realities about God and what he's doing in his story by just saying, hey, you were dead in your sins, now you're alive, now you got a new purpose, carry on. And while all that's true, it simplifies this multifaceted, beautiful, redemptive prism that we're getting from Paul. And we're sending David and Tara and Moses out tonight, which took 15 extra minutes. So uh, that's the, the sides of the horse that I feel like we could fall off on. But I want us to spend some time just walking through this text uh, because it does share our story. And it means a lot for us here in Mesa in 2022. And so we're just going to walk through it. Uh, first thing, these all have ours. And so I had to start this one with real talk. Uh, we were the walking dead. Uh, whether or not you like the TV show, Paul's description of what it was to be a human before Christ is that you're walking around dead. He says, as for you, which is all the people, plural, you all, y'all were dead in your transgressions and sins. Those two words hit at different dimensions of what it is to be against God. One is falling short morally and one is just failing to live into God's created intention and order. And so he's saying, when you're in that place, we all were, all humanity is in this space, dead in trespasses and sins. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them at some time. Uh, this word, uh, when it says lived, is this word that means literally to walk around. Uh, this is the world you dwelled in. This is what your inclinations of your heart were and your participation of your body was. Uh, we were created to enjoy God and his constant companionship, but because of sin, we were separated from life with him, which is a living death or leading to the walking dead. No pulse when it came to relationship with Jesus. Uh, no ability to discern uh, the will of God and how it works out in our lives. A drastic and graphic image. Our trespasses and sins in which we once lived. These are patterns of life and our sinful habits kept us in this awful existence that Paul says is death. And when you're in this place of being cut off from him, you're unable to experience human flourishing in its truest sense. Uh, this wasn't always the way it was, right? God created a world good, right, and beautiful. And it's when human beings chose to rebel against God that the world came under a curse and immediately they experienced death or separation. And that is 100% what God promised would happen to Adam and Eve, right? The day of you eat of this, you will surely die. And the lie of the enemy was, no, you won't surely die. God knows that when you eat of this fruit, you're gonna be like him. And so Adam and Eve in chapter three of the story eat of the fruit and immediately feel the devastating effects of the curse. A disintegration of humans with themselves, of humans with creation, of humans with other humans, and ultimately humans with God. There's a separation that takes place. And what Paul has already told us in Ephesians is that there's a day coming when God will bring back heaven and earth. That big picture thing that was separated will come back together. And we long for that day. 
And he's saying, in fact, we get a taste of it now because God's future is coming to the present. This is what we talked about the last two weeks, that we get to experience some of that now. And now he's unpacking what that looks like in the canvas of human lives. And so he lays out this situation where it's like, hey, y'all were dead and you needed to be brought to life, right? This situation is a doomsday scenario. Uh, There's no hope when you're dead. You can't bring yourself to life. Uh, When you're absolutely at the bottom, enslaved and trapped, all these pieces. The question that we can ask sometimes though is like, but why couldn't we just free ourselves? Like if I had made these bad decisions... If I was living in patterns of sin, if I had submitted myself to a yoke of slavery or I I picked up an addiction or I had participated in ways that led to death, why can't I just then do some things that then free me and lead to life? And Paul's answer for that is he's got these three spheres or these three different things that are all throughout the Bible, that when the Bible says sin leads to death, it's not just talking about our personal sin. And so when it talks about the the state of being dead and what it looks like for people to be trapped in this, he unpacks it using these three different things. So the first thing that he says is the ways of the world. Uh, Paul's letting us know that there's there's a creative genius at work in this world that is meant to keep us from God, that's meant to further enslave us, that is more powerful than we are as humans. He's saying we're living in God's good world, but it's been hijacked by the evil cosmic powers. And so we inhabit a beautiful but broken creation. He's laying out in the simple words that he uses of saying, you used to live this way and you followed the ways of this world. He's saying there's patterns and systems at play in this world that are orchestrated to further enslave you and keep you in death. There's idolatrous ways of thinking and cultural practices that are exploitative, enslaving addictions, manipulative relational techniques, strategies for personal advancement at the expense of others. All these are laced with corruption and they're baked into every culture on every continent. Now, this is where uh, culturally the practice of redlining came in and only allowed loans for white applicants in certain neighborhoods. Why? Because individuals wanted to do something? No, this was a structural organizational thing that was meant to separate people of different colors, right? He's talking about there's different things at play that extend beyond one person's individual choice. Uh, this is where mistreatment of women that runs deep in culture in order to appease men and advance some finds its home. This ways of the world is where the marginalized poor are held in that trap life and are stuck in this maddening complex web of systems and structures and relationships that are further held by unfair housing standards and restricted access to quality education that others can get. Uh, This is why, if you're looking at the ways of this world that he's talking about, systems beyond our control, uh, this is why our shoes and our phones are made by slaves in India and China, and there's nothing that we can do about it if we want to wear shoes or talk on the phone. And that's a complex system, right? If you carry an iPhone, it was made by people who are underpaid in China. If you wear Nikes, same story. I got both. It's complex. It's difficult. It's maddeningly 
impossible to figure out how do I live in a world where it seems like the structures are bent against health. It's when you have to vote in an election when you love neither candidate and can put up neither candidate to say like that's who fully represents the reign of God and I want to vote for them. You cannot do that in America. Can't do it in any country. But in America, you're not able to. And the structures get further worked out at a frustrating pace where you're like, man, I just wish there could be another option. That's what he's talking about. There's these patterns in the world, these structures and systems. There's a way of the world that keeps people enslaved. And then there's Satan, or the the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And so uh, I, I get this is a little bit different. You're like, wait, hold on. You're telling me like Satan at work? According to the Bible, it's true. I know that he's been minimized and mocked and become a cartoon character with a pitchfork and a little ears and they're writing whole shows about him just to to minimize his influence. But if you go back to the original Bible where you get the story of Satan in the beginning, he is absolutely a real character in the story. He has direct involvement in shaping perverted ideologies, mindsets, cultural prejudices, and the infinite variety of other destructive forces that dominate the creative order. He is not more powerful than God, but his power has been and continues to corrupt creation even after the cross and the resurrection. Now there's one day when he's finally fully disarmed and his power is completely stripped. But that day's at the restoration. Until then, we live in a world that overlaps his domain with the domain of Jesus. That every square inch that's claimed by Jesus to be his is counterclaimed by Satan claiming, no, I want that. And one of the primary reasons that Paul's writing is he wants us, he wants the Ephesians to see that what's at play behind their cultural norms is not just Caesar's decision. It's not just the local government's decisions, but there's principalities and powers at play in the world. And this has been, in our culture, maybe more than others, mocked so much that we feel a little bit silly even saying it. Are you really telling me you think there's demons? Like, like you really believe that Satan's out there doing something? The Bible's answer is yes. Like, do you really think that there's a reason that it's so hard to plant in Mesa a city that has been predominated by a certain belief system that is against the Jesus we believe? Like, do you think there's a reason why it's so hard to see the gospel go into the soil here? Yes, I do. Yes, I believe that there's principalities and powers that have claimed this and held power over it for a number of years. And then in a matter of moments, God has placed a number of the people in this room in places where you have a say in what will happen and shaping the future of a city. You better believe the enemy is going to press against that. And he says, when you were dead, you had no hope. You were completely enslaved by him. And so you got the systems, you got the Satan. And then you got yourself. Like we walked and lived and dreamed and played and participated in the brokenness of the world. And so while there are powers that are bigger than us, part of this deadness in walking around, a part of that deadness was that we participated in the brokenness of God's creation. Uh, We participated in the, in the condition of the creation, one way to say it, beautiful in that we still bear the image of God. So it's not all broken, right? You still bear the image of God, but broken in that we are corrupted by sin. Our imaginations were captured and we chose to live in accordance with this way of seeing God's world and our lives. 
uh, we follow and participate in paths of destruction. Like there's times when we absolutely knew the right thing to do and absolutely chose to do differently. Uh, We knew what would be a choice to love and care and concern for others, but we chose an easier, more self-advancing path. And we did it time and time and time again till that became the way of life. And so we ourselves walked about and participated in this. And, And Paul says, because of that, because you were destructive to God's creation, because you were perpetrating harm against other people, because you were living even disintegrated from yourself, You, like all those in rebellion to God, were by nature those objects, or you were the one on whom God's wrath would rightly fall for what you had done to his creation. Now, I know that's heavy. I know that's a lot. And I know that's dark. But what we also need to see is that this is a tragic departure from who we were ever called to be as humans. We were supposed to imagine and act in ways that could be fruitful and bless one another, seeking to enjoy the life God gave us according to his parameters, but instead we chose and were the walking dead with no hope. So can you imagine sitting around in the living room And you had just heard Paul's letter so far. And so chapter one was really good news, wasn't it? Like it was this beautiful mind-melting picture of the beauty of heaven and earth coming together. God saying there is hope in your calling and there is an inheritance waiting for you and there is power to live. And the power comes from Jesus who resurrected from the dead and stands above all and has everything under his feet and stands above every single principality and power. And you're like, yeah, amen. And then he paints this picture and brings up Not just the past of humanity, though it could be seen that way, but your history. And all of us have embarrassing histories. All of us have painful pasts. All of us carry some of the shame still that lingers from decisions that we made when we were decidedly against Jesus. And so he raises that in a way that would have reverberated deep in the hearts and souls of those who were listening, who remembered walking to that temple at the end of the street and performing acts of worship in front of Artemis, who remembered the way that they hurt their neighbors when they were pursuing self-advancement, who remembered the way that corruption had guided their commercial practices, So what are you feeling in that moment? As I was thinking through it, I was overwhelmed with the complexity and seeming comprehensive nature of sin. Like just sitting in that, it was like, man, how do you ever find hope in that? That seems so far beyond me. I was filled with sadness for those who are stuck in that pattern without the guiding love of God. I was convicted for ways that I still participate in the works of darkness, even though I knew what was coming in the next verse. I was left longing for Jesus to do something. Like there was this uh, almost a feeling of when you watch a movie that you've seen before and you know when the hero is going to come in and act decisively to turn the tide. But as it gets darker and darker and darker, even knowing that the hero still comes, there's this longing, would you show up already and do that thing? Make it right? I think being aware of what's being raised inside of us is really important. But thankfully, Paul doesn't stop there. 
Uh, this next verse prompted one of my more clever sermon series titles in my life. Um, it was title, entitled, uh, I was a youth pastor, so you're allowed to do stuff like this. It was called The Biggest Butts in the Whole Bible. Um, and you spelled it with one T, not two, for those of you that, that want to do your grammar. Uh, the Biggest Butts in the Whole Bible. The second title was I Like Big Butts. And I Cannot Lie. Uh, and then it was a list of these verses. So there is a massive turn. It's, it's one T, not two. So don't go home and tell your parents. It's one T, not two. Um, the next thing we're going to see is the rescue, though. Read these verses. In light of that dark, dismal, bleak outlook, enslaved, Satan at work, principalities and powers, destined to be children of wrath, no hope, walking dead, all this dark, the light's going down. And then onto the scene comes, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Uh, not when we did something right, not when we got it together, not when we finally figured it out, but while we were still dead and unable to do anything, Christ does this for us. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He didn't just rescue us and set us to zero and say, have at it again. But he rescues us and sets us with Jesus and says, there, now live your life from that place in Christ. You might be in Phoenix, but you are in Christ. You might be in Gilbert, but you are in Christ. You're heading to Littleton, but you're still in Christ. And he says, that's what you need to remember, that God being rich in mercy and like a room that's going completely dark, the light of this marvelous mystery of Jesus bringing rescue shines in. And there's a sigh of relief that goes through because it's like, yes, it was that bad, but now I remember this moment of grace. I want to say this, there's a darkness in our past. Uh, we all have painful and embarrassing moments, and I'm not dismissing or minimizing what you've done or what was done against you. I don't think that's helpful. But the good news is that because of the new work of Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection, painful things have, that have been done to us and that we have done are now swallowed up in this new reality, and they're changed. Our sins are forgiven, and our pain can be redeemed. We are saved and raised up with Christ, not because we worked off our sin or earned our way out of ourselves out of punishment, but what does it say? But because of the love of God. Not because of anything in us, not because we were so awesome that he wanted to save us. In fact, the Bible tells us that we were so messed up that he had to save us, but he does it with great love and compassion. And it's beautiful. He's saying that that new creation life that is coming one day, followers of Jesus get to participate in right now. Like it's not just one day you're seated with Christ in the heavens, which is what a lot of us in the Western world think. Like, oh yeah, that happens one day. If you read your Bible, he says it happens at the point when you were rescued, you were raised to sit with Christ. There's a new creation reality true about you right now. Why does he do that? Paul would say the answer is it's because of God and his grace. Pure and simple. It's because God is a gracious God. It's because that's what God likes to do. That's because that's who God is. His aim in freeing us from death and enslavement from the powers is to return us to the condition of being humanity as he always intended it. 
to be able to delight in us and us delight in him to be able to renew our hearts so we can be reoriented in love towards him so that he can take what was dead and broken and just like he breathed life into that first body, breathe life again into us, animating us for the work that we have to do in this world. He says it's because of grace. It says in order that in the age, so in order that, that's a word saying this is why he did that. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace that were expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. He isn't just showing off, showing that other saviors are false, though he is doing that. But in his victory, he's bringing about once again what God loves, doing good to humanity, enjoying us, and we get to enjoy again how to live in God's world as God's people with him. That was always his intention from the moment that humans rebelled against God and he made that promise to set out on the long road of redemption. It wasn't just to save individual people from their little bad decisions that they made on their own and kind of pluck them around, but he's about something that involves the restoration of humans, but also the restoration of all creation. He says that thing that happened in the future, he's pulling it into the present because that's the kind of God he is and not because of anything in us. And then he uses two different words or two different fours to say, and why does he do that though? All right, he does it because he's God and because he's good. He does it because he's God and that's the kind of stuff God does. He does it because he promised that he would do it way back when and he's being faithful to that promise. Now, what does that look like? Like, like why does he do that? And that's where he says that oh so famous verse, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith and this isn't of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that nobody can brag about it. He's saying there's no swagger when you walk in front of the cross and out the side of the resurrection. None of us have a swagger when it comes to standing before Jesus because none of us could do anything to save ourselves. If you were ever really good in sports, uh, that's probably where that comes from, right? Like that little bit of, you know, we like to boast about things we're good at. Uh, maybe if you're good in math club in the math leets, you also brag about that. Humans are super good at bragging about absolutely anything. They have an inkling of success at, aren't we? Like we invent ways uh, and then invent new ways and new subgroups to find something that we're good at that will raise us up so that we're better than others. And the Pharisees back then and the Pharisees today still want to believe that the reason God really loves me is there's something in me that made him want to love me. Like he wanted to recruit me for his team and draft me. But what Paul's saying is like, no, no, no. It's absolutely by grace. There's nothing that you did. When talking about grace, uh, Eugene Peterson says this. He says, the air that we breathe and the atmosphere we inhabit as believers and followers of Jesus is grace. It's everywhere to be experienced, but nowhere to be explained. That idea that you, once you're in it, you absolutely know what it feels like. But take three seconds and try to write out your uh, doctrinal stance on what it is. And for some reason, it feels not quite as amazing as it is to actually be rescued by Jesus. He also says grace originates with an act of God that is absolutely without precedent. The gener generous, sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus that makes it possible for us to participate in resurrection maturity or a resurrected community. And that's the next thing that Paul says. It's for by grace you have been saved. 
all right, so it's for grace we've been saved, but also why is that? Verse 10, he says, for we are God's handiwork or we are God's artwork. We are God's project, the creation project that he made on purpose, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, I don't often like to correct the Bible, especially not at an end of a sermon, but you, but you miss something both at the beginning and at the end because translators didn't want know what to do with this. So when they talk about how you walked around in these ways, like the ways that you used to live, it uses this word uh, peripateo, which means to walk around or dwell or live. And that's what it says at the beginning. And then at the end of this text, it doesn't ever say anywhere to do, that God created them for you to do. It actually says that's what God created good works for you to walk around in. He's saying the realm where you used to dwell when you were dead was walking around in these selfish, self-promoting practices that enslaved you further. And what God actually created you for resurrects you to life, brings you to life, gives you a new heart, gives you new energy, gives you new imagination. What he does that for is that you can now walk around in the way that you're always intended to live. In these good works, which aren't just random acts of kindness, so Kenzie opened a door for somebody. Yeah, no, uh, it would be really great if, Meg, you painted a painting and gave it to somebody. Uh, Becca, if you made a meal. Like those, those can find themselves in that, but that's not the highlight of what he's talking about. He's talking about when he says good works, a way of living life that leads to flourishing. Like you're now able, what before was only enslavement, you can now experience and live in such a way that you flourish and the community around you flourishes. And the imagination of the Ephesians would be sparked to say, what if this took place in our communities scattered throughout our city? That people who were dead remember just how bad it was, so they're full of grace. But then also remember how good it was what they were rescued to and live decidedly different lives because of it. What could take place? The three words I'm going to write down for us out of this, for us to walk away with. The first one, uh, this text, it is messianic. So think Jesus. Uh, what Paul's writing down lifts up Jesus because he is the only one who could do what we could never do. He lived a life that we could never live. He died a death that we deserve to die. He rose again triumphing over the powers of darkness and he did that in world history and he did that in your life uh, the second thing that we see is it's missional uh, with that it invites and it moves us to take up our role in God's story the church has been really good for a number of years in America at reading 2, 8, and 9 and forgetting about 10 because they had a complicated work relationship with works because they said, you're not really earning it. So let's leave that part off and just memorize 2, 8, and 9. But it's one text. And it's actually the end of the text that started in 2, 1. You have to take it as a chunk. He is saying that the badge of what you show, whether or not you believe this, is whether or not you live it out. It doesn't mean that you earned it because of that, but it shows that you have it. He's saying this is what you're now created for these created intensive works. 
And this invites and moves and inspires us to take up our role in God's story uh, because we know how bad that life of enslavement is, because we know that people are without hope. We are called and invited and commissioned out to be people who are hope dealers in our work, in our, where we play, where we go to school, where we exist in life. Every arena is meant to bring this good news. And then the third thing I want to remind us of, and because we're doing these A's, it's for Mesa. Gilbert, you get an asterisk. But it's also for Mesa. And here's what I, I, I need us and I want us to remember. Our prayer has been that the gospel would be refreshingly good news for us. I want us to remember again that this good news is for our neighbors. This doesn't mean that everybody you meet is as bad as they could be. That's not what it's saying. But in the, in, according to Ephesians, it's not in an out language even that he uses a lot to say, hey, there's people that are in and there's people that are out. There's people that have received this grace and people that still need to receive it is how he's calling them. And so if you've received this grace, then I want you to go to those who have yet to receive it and announce and embody good news among them because they're still walking around. They still have that trifecta at work in their life of Satan and these systems and their selfish choices. And when you're dead, you can't make yourself come to life. So don't be frustrated that they will act like the walking dead. But be people of life in their light. Be people who bring good news be people who reflect on the depths and the beauty that we have in Jesus. Do it on your own, do it in communities and be faithful to do it regularly. Let's pray.